everybody, and welcome back from their episode of Mangum Reads. As we verily vault to the varied verse and vicissitudes of vignettes of Avorium, both venerated and vulgar, and void for verisimilitude. As per usual, I'm Spencer, and joining me are BJ and Sarah. How y'all doing? I am just very Spencer. <laughs> uh, very impressed by your uh, vivacious reading, Spencer, as, as I am whenever you embark on, on such things. As, as per usual, I had to write these things down with little spaces in the words to know how the hell to pronounce them. But, you know, I enjoy every now and then making up $5 words. <laughs> that was a but, weird little insight into you, Spencer, that I was not expecting to get tonight. You know, that's, I think, the nature of these podcasts, really, is, you know, there's subject matter we arrange to discuss, but mostly, let's find out how Spencer's psychology works, because that's a dark and twisted road. Speaking of dark and twisted psychologies... <laughs> Yeah, we're continuing our run through short stories, and this week we're tackling Alice Munro's Dimension. I'd originally recommended this because someone back in 2013, which is I think when she won the Nobel Prize, had recommended her, and per my usual, I put her on the back burner and kind of ignored her for the next six years. But when we were struggling to think of stories, her name came to mind, and this one came up on a Google search. And I'm glad it came to me randomly. It uh, made for a rather unique read, kind of... Uh, I think, Sarah, you compared it a bit to yellow wallpaper, and it definitely had connotations of that in my mind. Yeah, we've got some, some resonances going on here. Yeah, this would have been a very good Halloween um, episode. Well, we found a free copy of this in The New Yorker, and in terms of Halloween episodes, the initial picture that opens the book kind of fits that well. Cause I don't know what editor decided to put this on things, but it's going to give me nightmares going forward. Yeah, um, I'm kind of curious about Francesco Clemente and his other work. Well, to introduce our author, Alice Munro is a Canadian author who has been writing for pretty much the last 65 years. Her first short story was published back in 1950, and her latest compilation, I believe, came out in 2014. Uh, she's very well regarded, won the Nobel Prize in 2013, along with numerous other uh, works of um, prizes for literature, and she's primarily regarded as one of the golden gods of short stories in the modern format. I had never read anything by her before. This is really my first introduction. Were either of you familiar with her before we started this one? I think I've read a couple of stories by her, but it has been so long ago I feel uncomfortable even claiming that. Um, so this was, I'll call it a reintroduction, um, but these might have been stories that I was pretending to have read in the first place, so I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what about you, CJ? Hundred percent, my my first introduction, as far as I know. I mean, I guess it's possible that I stumbled across something and mm -hmm. and read it, but um, at least not. I'm not conscious of anything that I, of hers that I've read before. And if it's in a similar vein, then I also think it's fairly unlikely. <laughs> well, one of the things we love to start with on our show is discussing other people who innocently came across her stories and were deeply offended or traumatized by what they went through. Uh, Sarah, do you have any one-star reviews for us to start things off? I do. I'm trying to go through. I, one of them is like an actual one-star review. I think the others are two-star reviews. Um, but as I normally do with short stories, I have done the reviews um, based on the collections in which they were eventually published because that is a little bit easier than trying to sift through and figure out what somebody on the internet thought about a given short story. Um, so these come from the collection Too Much Happiness, uh, which far and away, the first thing that people had a problem with was um, the idea that you would possibly put the word happiness in the title <laughs> of a short story collection. I was misled. <laughs> 
it really was a lot of that, um, which I, it gives it gives me thoughts about gives me thoughts about the people leaving reviews like that. Anyway, um, so let me. I don't have these in any particular order, but I think I have three of them, um, and. Yes. Okay. So I think I have three of them. I have one. They all come from Goodreads. My first one comes from Betsy Meyer 01, who gave this book an actual one-star review. Um, I don't know what I missed, but I did not enjoy this book. It's on the New York Times bestsellers list and had great reviews. The book is a collection of short stories, but they are all very depressing. I felt so down in the dumps while reading this book. Every story uh, started giving me that pit in my stomach feeling and then turned out even worse. If you're looking for something uplifting, choose something else. Um, this was very much a person who got taken in by the word happiness in the title um, and decided that they were going to get, I don't know, some sort of like chicken soup for the soul-y kind of thing um, and mm -hmm. ended up with, well, Alice Munro. Um, yeah. Go ahead, Spencer. Yeah, that's an interesting review because from a very different perspective of someone coming in with a different objective, that could be a five-star review. Yeah, absolutely. Like, actually, everything that she has said here are exactly what I like about this story. <laughs> <laughs> and I would imagine is what I would like about the rest of this collection. So um, maybe I should just start actually going to one-star reviews for <laughs> my recommendations. I, I still think they're the best. It, re it really are, tells yeah. you so much more than, oh, I loved it. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's not mm -hmm. helpful. Um, so then my second one, um, and I have lost track of whether this is a one-star or two-star review. Anyway, also from Goodreads, something about these stories makes my skin creep. There is a feeling of total emptiness, as if I am watching people's lives unfold in front of in front of the plexiglass of a zoo enclosure. Sorry, there's a typo there. Monroe is a talented writer, but there is nothing showy in her style. I felt no connection with the characters. The time and the place are not developed in great detail. All you are left with is the uncomfortable situation she picks as her material. Unfinished lives, death, mis misunderstanding, lies. I'll come back to Monroe the next time I want the literary equivalent of dissecting a frog. But in the meantime, I'll stick to authors who can write beautifully, craft a plot, and make a full-blooded human being leap from the page. I really want to know who can do that in a short story that, that would satisfy this person. Like, the point about short stories is that you have to pick and choose, right? Mm -hmm. um, you can only highlight so many of those elements if you are trying to do them in a great way. Uh, you literally cannot do all of them in one story. Yeah, and if this, if this person was talking about this story in particular, were they talking about the compilation? Or the the story? compilation, the, yeah. But for this story in particular, this is an intensely detailed and personal analysis of a woman's psychology and coping with trauma and grief. I know this woman exceptionally well right now, I figure. Yeah, I had a lot of connections with the characters. Um, there are also lines in this particular review that I'm not... Now I wish I knew how many stars this person gave it, because some of them actually sound really complimentary. Um, mm -hmm. I, yeah, so I don't open, know. That yeah. opening sounded like, you know, man, that, that, that that's not a problem. That's a feature kind of description of right, the story. Right, this, this feeling of total emptiness as if I'm watching people's lives unfold in front of the plexiglass of a zoo enclosure. I think that's what Alice Munro is going for. Oh, yeah, very much so. <laughs> I mean, I think the other side of it is just like, admittedly, I probably could have picked it up from context clues, but I had no idea that they were in London or a suburb thereof, and it didn't matter. Like, No, it really didn't. It's an everyman kind of story, right? It could have happened anywhere. 
Right. It's, it's almost it's almost purposeful that the actual identifying location, London, is only mentioned in the, like the very first sentence and the very last sentence. Mm-hmm. It's purely meant to be background. The story is about her. Um, so I have one more review. And this is a quick one, and I have chosen this one um, because we get, I don't know if the technical description for this is a humble brag, um, but there is a lot going on in this review that has nothing to do (laughs) with the book itself. Um, Hmm. So this is a book that I feel that I should just love, uh, or that I should love to justify the grades I got in college English. Alice Munro truly has a writing gift and her characters are well drawn, but the stories go absolutely nowhere. You get interested in a character and what is going on and then it, period, just, period, ends, period. What is the point of even telling the story when nothing is going to happen? It left me feeling each time that I was missing hidden nuances that I was just too stupid to discover. I didn't love it. Guess I should have gotten a seat. Too much work for pleasure reading. Or gone to a better school. (laughs) I don't know. Um, well, yeah. So apparently, if you got good grades in English, you are supposed to like Alice Munro, and I, th- there's a lot going on here. Yeah, I'm detecting a consistent theme of poor marketing when it comes to these works, at least for these one-star reviewers, where <laughs> they went into this expecting the very wrong thing of what they were going to get out of it. Yeah, I feel like this is sort of one of those like they they get something off a New York Times bestseller list or recommended by Oprah, and it's like, oh, it's going to be, you know, a happy, uplifting story that's going to help me in my, you know, marriage that probably I should have divorced out of five, ten years ago. And it's just not. Mm-hmm. No. Um, and that's okay. And, it, an interesting one-star review of a sort actually comes from the author herself. Do you guys hear about that? No. No. Uh, it's not that she disliked it. It's that this is her one story that she refuses to reread. Oh, Interesting. Uh, read that in a journalist comment on it, and that she didn't bother to explain why either. Because That's it's really depressing. <laughs> well, I know, but you a know, lot of people read depressing things, and I think a lot of authors reread depressing things that they've written. Sure. I don't know. This wasn't like... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I'm not sure I trust authors' opinions of their work after Ken Liu, so... <laughs> Fair point. Fair point. Oh, but we it, finally got you, BJ, into the author is dead camp. <laughs> <laughs> The author is dead to him. I knew. I knew, I knew we could get you there. I just, found, I just found that an interesting comment because this is not like it's an early story in her career. She wrote this like, you know, this is originally published in New Yorker in 2006. Mm-hmm. So it's like 56 years after she started. And this is the one that she's like, nope, not going back to that one. Mm-hmm. I, I can yeah, also I imagine that a lot of people like reach out to her and want to talk about it and... Um, you want to go through it for either their healing or what she saw in it. And it's just mm. not maybe one of those stories that she really wants to have that, like a, a more intimate connection with her readers over maybe. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point, BJ. And I think kind of going along with that, you know, she, I, she probably doesn't want to have that more in, in, intimate connection with her readers over this story, but she also, like, probably doesn't want to be put in a position of authority to, like, fix people. Yeah, that's a big one, too. Like, that's not her job. Uh, much as these reviewers might have liked that to be her <laughs> job. <laughs> what was that, Spencer? Um, I was also just thinking that it just occurred to me, that in terms of false marketing, uh, I'm guessing in the short story compilation they didn't open with this picture, because the moment I opened the page for The New Yorker and saw that, I had no hopes of this being a happy or 
contented story. No, actually, like this felt like a that felt like a very fair introduction to what the story was. Um, mm-hmm. So I think I didn't go in with any illusions. The cover, I don't know if this is the only cover for Too Much Happiness, but um, the one that is being referenced on Goodreads is a very um, kind of plain literary cover. <laughs> well, thank you, Sarah, for the one-star reviews. The other thing that makes these kind of book clubs fun, though, is alcohol. So do you have a drink for us as well? I do, and I was very excited about this drink. Um, so we are, we, I promise, dear listeners, we are about to get to the story. Um, but we begin the story with um, an introduction to, I would say, our, pretty much our, our main character. Uh, certainly the point of view from which we get... Um, we get the story, a woman named Dory. And I have found a recipe for a drink called a Dory Spritz. And um, that's appropriate, right? (laughs) And it is it is lovely. Um, And I actually this is a this is a drink that I legitimately have enjoyed drinking. Um, And it is about an ounce and a half of um, Aperol, which is an apricot flavored liqueur, uh, with about two ounces of some sort of sparkling wine. Um, I had a Prosecco that I'm using, and then it is topped off with a little bit of mineral water. So it is um, light. It is beautifully colored. It has a little bit of sort of fruity bitterness from the Aperol, and it has bubbles in it. So it is really rounding the bases for me. Um, I also think that it is particularly appropriate for our Dory in this story because she says very definitively at one point that she does not drink. And while this does have alcohol in it, it is a spritz, so it is very light. Hmm. You know, of the, of the various drinks you've described the last few weeks, I think that one might make the top of my list of the ones I actually want to try. Interesting. I gave some to Terry, and he really liked it. Well. Uh, my pa- my parents also want you to explain that uh, the drink you made for, um, I'm blanking the name of the story, our, our modern vampire tale, the, the, the drink you produced with that that had all hungry the little licorice things. Daughters. Hungry of- Daughters of Starving Mothers. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, that uh, was they- mostly food coloring. Yeah, they want that drink explained because that one has haunted their dreams. <laughs> well, good. Um, so, so I know I usually don't um, factor into this, but I happen to choose a um, a wine that seems oddly appropriate called Moral Compass. Mm. Ooh, excellent! Yep. What kind of wine is it? Um, it's a fairly nice uh, Cabernet. Um, mm-hmm. It's from Washington. Excellent. So, are I'm, we? Oh, I, what are you drinking, Spencer? I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I just I wish I had something more impressive. I'm drinking a Stella and pretending to be classic. Ah, very nice. <laughs> Did you find it on one of the buses that you travel on? Uh, no, that would add to the story in a way I cannot offer. I found it at the, bo- <laughs> at the bottom of my, pa- my pantry. At the bottom of your pantry? Again, Thank stories you, within stories you get out of me. I've, you beat me to it. Um, anyway, <laughs> so... As for this story. Yes. As for the story, um, I'm going to use my one very, very early on. <laughs> okay. Which is, Spencer, how did you feel oh. about Lloyd's mentoring of Dory? Oh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> uh, it, it, I mean, I, I think the phrase works just in a nightmarish kind of way. Okay. Just, just that checking. He, that there, I mean... 
I mean, their relationship is him. How old do you think he is compared to her? Because she basically starts her relationship with him at like 16, 17. And, and he's described he, as being more of a, pair, a peer of her mom. Yeah, he's supposed to be just a couple of years younger than her mom. Um, but let's maybe let's describe a little bit of where we start in this story because we do get this background in a second. Yeah. We, we get an interesting background that this story does not like to directly introduce its points. It's kind of get, slowly building to us finding them. It almost reminds me of like a Hitchcock thriller of where we're aware there's a bomb that's going to go off, but we don't know when, we don't know exactly in what way. Yeah, it's, but, it's really circuitous. It feels um, like the sort of uh, Yeatsian widening gyre. It just keeps mm-hmm. circling around and around and around. Um, but we start with Dory, who I think is at the center of, of all of it. Right, because she's going on a bus to somewhere. She's having to take several different buses to get there, and we get a description of a woman who is purposely trying to not maintain. Who's purposely trying to change herself in various ways, while also not maintain or build any new connections with anybody. Um, she works as a chambermaid, as they put it. Uh, she's recently entirely changed her look. Um, she's not looking to. She's looking to have a profession that doesn't involve her talking to people. And we keep on getting hints that there is in some way that the world knows her, that she was put in the public light, but without making very clearly early on what that was, other than it clearly involved some measure of trauma upon her. Yeah, and it also had a bunch of other things that really clue you into what this story is going to be like. Mm-hmm. Um, because it talks about like her look and how she was, and... It was as he liked it, and yeah. he didn't like her doing that, and he liked this, and he mm-hmm. didn't like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we, we don't really get any more of who he is or why he liked or didn't like certain things, but there's this sort of, um, almost sort of Damocles hanging over her um, and how she is and what she does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that's fair. And there are this this opening description that we get that really goes on for like a pretty lengthy portion of the short story of her on these various buses has exactly mm-hmm. as you were saying, BJ, these kind of clues tucked into what is going on. Um, this picture that she has of her children that seems relatively innocuous in the moment that it comes up. But as we were talking about the sort of economy of short stories a little bit earlier, like it's there for a reason. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's not really, if we're all being honest, when we're reading the story, there's no way that it's there for a good reason. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it was also, I guess, interesting to me, the um, talking about buses and, and just the sitting on buses and sort of that taking up time and effort and, and mm-hmm. sort of everything associated with that. And it just it reminds me of when um i would take a bus into work essentially but like i'd go i was doing half a day at school and half a day um working in a lab and i would take a bus to the light rail and take the light rail into work and it made me very empathetic to people to that have to take buses Mm -hmm. because if i missed my bus it was a similar amount of time to walk like a little bit over three miles to the light rail station as it was to wait for the next bus and and the transit time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that is just something insane to me like you know the bus would take like 10 15 minutes or whatever it is to to get from from my stop to the light rail station but if i missed it it was like 
the hour or whatever it would take me to walk was essentially the time that it would take for me to like wait for the next bus and take it and just that whole the whole process of taking more than one method of transportation and just how long and involved that ends up being and how much time you get to just sort of sit there and do whatever it is yeah and i think it also brings up the kind of like i mean i think that a couple of things are going on here in addition to that which is the sort of like the very quick um social economy of the situation that you get in these multiple buses that she is taking um Mm -hmm. to get there right she's not driving at any point when I was living out in the sticks, I would drive to a um, community college to take a bus into campus, into UNC's campus. And like, not unlike you were just saying, BJ, um, those buses came infrequently. And I always took the last bus of the morning into campus. And so if I missed that bus, there just wasn't another bus, Um, but I could drive in. I'd have to drive in and pay for the gas and pay for the parking and have my mm-hmm. car there and whatever, whatever. But like, I could do that. There were a lot of people taking that bus who couldn't do that. Yeah. And it just sort of, it really, I guess it, once you have that experience, it really puts you in the mind of how encompassing it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe a little bit less so, you know, in the middle of London or wherever this story takes place, but like that, this person is to a large extent especially taking three buses to get somewhere at the whims of other people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so where do what do we learn next well we see her various experiences you guys talked about in terms of dealing with the time it takes in the buses because i think she describes it taking from almost nine to two to get where she wants to go in terms of going between these and watching the other people and playing word games changing around words as she goes to cope with the time And then we really kind of cut from there to basically her therapy that she's going through with Mrs. Sands, um, who we don't really understand fully what the purpose of the therapy is at first, other than that she's been in it for a while, and she has a kind of mixed relationship when it comes to her, of where the woman, Mrs. Sands, clearly wants to help her and clearly is being supportive in a way that she's more receptive to than she's been to others in the past, but she's still very closed off to it, and honestly only gets more closed off as the story goes. Yeah, she clearly thinks like thinks and knows that Mrs. Sands is is very smart mm-hmm. and is trying to help her, but it's a kind of trying to help her in her way, right? Uh, which mm-hmm. is not not the help that Dory needs or thinks she needs, um, or or wants, or I, it, 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 that that gets a little confused. Um, I don't know if Dory, particularly early on in the story, really knows what she needs or wants mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. And that does not help in terms of what she's getting out of this therapy, is that she's kind of rudderless. She's lost any degree of purpose. She's lost any degree of motivation. She's lost any hope of a spark of happiness. And this kind of regular therapy that may work for a lot of people is just not having any effect on her because she doesn't know what she wants to get out of it, other than that she doesn't really want to, she can't really, either doesn't want to or can't really connect with any other person right now. And did you all... Is it is it true? So I got this impression. I'm wondering if this is like an actual thing in the story or just something that I kind of made up. Um, that this is state like kind of state mandated therapy. That was my impression. Okay, yeah. um, which is why she keeps going back and why Mrs. Sands is so insistent about mm-hmm. her going back. Okay, I, I guess I wouldn't. I got a little bit of that, and I guess it didn't quite 
feel like state mandated but something that like everybody told her that she should do so she's doing mm-hmm. kind of thing yeah that might um, be a little bit too strong of a term but she does and we'll get to the reasons why in a second but she does get set up with a social worker um who is like managing her case yeah um and i guess it it, it very much feels like a she doesn't feel like this person can help her and mm-hmm. is just sort of going through what going through some motions she almost seems to feel both with this person and with several other people that normally you might say would be her support network that being perfectly open and honest with them would hurt things that if she actually spoke what she thought or what she viewed the world to be that in some way they would hurt what she has and we see that both with dealing mm-hmm. with uh, this particular social worker and also dealing with various friends of hers like maggie that if she ever was actually open and honest they would in some way interfere with the course of her life as it is or as it is most comfortable comfortable to her I, and go ahead bj uh, um i guess what i was gonna say is i guess i feel like it's she realizes how wrong her life is and knows that but doesn't want to change it and so mm-hmm. I think she, it, to me at least, it felt like she realizes how what what's going on isn't right, and if she tells somebody, they will change it. But for whatever reason, and I I don't know how to articulate it, she doesn't want to, or doesn't feel that she can, or something like that. And it it yeah. it is a very um, I hate to say common, but but it's sort of one of those things that I guess I've had sort of some experience with but also reading a lot of people's um, discussions of abusive relationships mm-hmm. and how they talk about it and uh, recount stories and sometimes especially like on social media sites like reddit like in the moment try and justify the things that are happening but there's a tinge of you know what's going like everybody knows that this isn't okay mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She, she seems to try to explain it to herself, at least with dealing with Maggie, her other friend, who we'll get to in a minute, that um, it's not that he's doing anything bad. It's that if I said it out, if I just said it straight out, she'd misunderstand. That it would it just looks bad. It would just be easily confused. And yeah. so she would get lost in it. Yeah. Whereas I is- know, I know what my husband is really right. like. And he doesn't mean any of this. But to an outsider who doesn't have the context, who doesn't know... Right. The nuances she, she, of our relationship, yeah. She she likes my perspective. She'd overreact, mm-hmm. and oh. I can't have that because you know it could lead to horrible things, uh, particularly if he finds right. out that she overreacted. I feel uh, like uh, for Mrs. Sands, uh, the therapist is a little bit more because she only starts going to Mrs. Sands after events transpire, right? Um, yeah. That she, I, I think that you're right, BJ, in the sort of sense that she or she senses that that Dory senses that something is not quite right, but she has built up this kind of fragile equilibrium around that not rightness Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that Mrs. Sands coming in to kind of dismantle that to make it right is really threatening. Yeah. She she looks at this as if she's actually succeeding in coping to a certain degree right now. Yes. The extent to which she can forget ish. (laughs) Have you guys seen the newsroom? Yes. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a character in here that undergoes a similar uh, transformation in in her looks, and I 
it was that character Maggie. Maggie. Maggie? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, she cuts her hair. She dyes it. She changes a lot of her looks. Starts acting very differently. Um, and it kind of reminds me of you know this character also had a very significant trauma in her life that she doesn't want to talk about and um just sort of that feel of everybody knows something's wrong but nobody really wants to tackle it head on except for somebody who's immense maybe immensely qualified to do so but everybody is like well no like she says she's fine yeah Hmm. well and i feel like that sort of reaction in the wake of trauma is is very common and i think you know particularly not exclusively of course but particularly for women um simply because identity is frequently so wrapped up in a kind of outward projection right and an outward appearance appearance that if i change if i radically change the way that i present to the world i will become a different person it's in, it's interesting too in her interactions with the other characters, the other people that are trying to help her. What undercurrent of guilt she goes through in terms of interacting with them mm-hmm. is that she's keeping this from them, and she's suffering in guilt that she's doing so. She feels like she should talk with them, she should be honest with them, she should reveal everything to them, but she feels compelled for various reasons that we talked about to not do so, and that just twists her up inside that she has to hide that she feels the need she has to hide this from them. Yeah, and one of those reasons is because her husband told her not to. Yeah, and let's get into Lloyd himself, because yes. that's what really comes next. Yeah. Yeah. So um, after we get a quick sort of introduction to Miss Sands, Mrs. Sands, uh, we get a, um, well, back in the day, how it all started. <laughs> yeah. Young so love. She was 16, and her mom was suffering from a severe spinal issue in the hospital, and she met the love of her life. Who is her yeah. mother's age. It was a mother. It was an orderly Ish. at the hospital who everybody likes. Um, I mean, he, he's described. How old did you guys see him? I saw him being like maybe early forties, kind of thing. I would say so. I mean, I, yeah, he could be in his thirties, though. I mean, yeah. if she's sixteen. Yeah, she's so young; it messes up the math. And he's supposed to be a few years younger than her mother. So yeah. even if you say that her mother had her at twenty which is not mm-hmm. out of the bounds with kind of, I think, the time period that we're dealing with in this story and all of that. Um, he mm-hmm. could easily be in his early 30s. Yeah. yeah, and so presumably this is written presciently, and so it would have been somewhat time in the 2000s, and then so hippie era, 60s, 70s, so I, I think that all fits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... Um... So her mom is in there for a surgical procedure that she's reassured is serious but not life-threatening. And during the time that she's visiting her mom, she spends a lot of time with this Lloyd fellow. And so much of their... I find this extended account of their relationship just really, really uncomfortable. Cause I don't, I, it's been a while since I've read a story. I mean, we, get a, we definitely get a touch of it in Yellow Wallpaper of where someone is describing a relationship that they have no idea of how deeply, deeply wrong it is. Mm-hmm. Um. I already referenced one of them earlier and to me that i mean it may be more so than than yellow wallpaper the the shafa uh relationship is just oh man that gives me the willies yeah because what we find out very quickly so these two sort of fall in love um (laughs) that's a word for it uh, um in in the words of the story in this moment they fall in love uh, Dory's mother ends up dying in the hospital. 
Um, and Dory is still 16, so she gets sort of shuttled around to um, a couple of different family members and friends of her mother's who were all more than willing to take her in, but Dory had already formed this relationship with Lloyd and was in the way of 16-year-olds hellbent um, on being in this relationship. So they get married. Yeah, but by 17, she's pregnant and married shortly thereafter, and then they have two more children with inside of five years, roughly. Yes. As, yeah. Uh, Lloyd as, has very particular feelings about. Yeah, he's, he's grown up. Children. He's gotten older. And birth control. And yeah. his his philosophy of life had changed. He got older. He believed now in marriage, constancy, and no birth control. Yes. Uh, and, which comes up again and again in the story. Yeah. And very quickly, we start to see all the kinds of warning signs. As yeah, he, now we see warning hmm. signs. Not the kiss in the elevator where oh, her mother's yeah, dying, sure. but. It gets worse from there. How about that, BJ? Yeah, I like that. As very quickly, uh, they move to an entirely different part of the country because they don't want to have to deal with old friends, old ways of life, old lovers anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're not living in the city. They're in an isolated area outside of town. And, of course, their kids can't go to school. And, you know, really, she shouldn't hang out with too many friends. They'll just break them up. And, you know, honestly, we can just plant our own garden here, and I can handle everything. So I guess I get a lot out of the the story flipping between the um i will say insanity of her life and the um sessions that she has with mrs yeah. sands mm-hmm. and sort of the weird progression that she's made in these and seeing probably a number of counselors or uh psychiatrists psychologists it's sort of unclear um exactly what um what miss or or the the training that mrs sands has had mm-hmm. um but yeah um anyway and so like we we get fairly early on that she's been to a number of counselors and that she's sort of made some semblance of progress um o- official progress at least well <laughs> she she the things that she can talk about or at least mrs sands can talk about not um, have Dory withdraw within herself has changed sure. throughout their relationship. So, mm-hmm. um, clinical markers of progression, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Um, but they're they're very much couched in a like, well, you know, uh, clearly I've gone from A to B, but but like we can't talk about that, and 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 it's a very unhealthy way of looking at the progression that has been made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that's right. And I, I think that um, you're right to point out the, the like real impact of the interplay between the kind of recounting of these sessions with Mrs. Hands that happened much later than the actual action of what is being described in the marriage itself. Um, that kind of swirl of time, as well as the back and forth between those, the, the, the kind of stasis and quote-unquote pro- progress is really interesting. Yeah. And I think also like the description that that Dory has of Mrs. Sands and how that is so um, colored by her history Mm -hmm. Um, and just like how she views what this woman wears her, how in shape or not in shape she is and and how she her uh, Dory's impression of how Mrs. Sands lives her life and how kind of her husband would have reacted to it mm-hmm. and then we, we sort of dip in and out of out of the 
session and back into um, her life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so in those descriptions of Dory's life, we learn a lot about the kind of intervening years as um, they continue to, she and Lloyd continue to have children. Um, their third child, Dimitri, ends up being colicky. And I, I would say that this is the first major blow up that that we as readers get access to, although there are clearly others happening. The signs were there. Yeah. Um, but Dimitri <laughs> stops, stops breastfeeding earlier than any of the other children have at that point. Um, and Lloyd very much uh, blames Dory. Mm-hmm. That they, it's really one of the first moments where she starts to maybe sort of realize that there's something wrong about all this. Mm-hmm. That his reaction is unreasonable. That he not only blames her, but he ties this to any future problems that happen with the child. Yes. And we see that so play that, out kind of multiple times. Multiple times in multiple ways. Mm-hmm. That any... Anything that could go wrong with respect to the children is laid at her feet, and this is the first example of it. Um, and that is only intensified by the fact that by the time uh, the first children start to become sort of school age, Lloyd insists on them being homeschooled. Right. Which, of course, is left entirely at her feet. Well, I mean, he teaches them things on the weekend as they come up in their conversations. Oh, Saint that he is. <laughs> Obviously. Obviously. What did they learn about? Like cars? And some the hibernation of animals. <laughs> yeah. You know, some, as we see, he knows a few things about bears over the course of this story. Oh, and the solar system. Oh, yeah, of because course. Because, of course. And gardening and working on cars and, and all those things that, that you should know about. Sure. And as a result of that, she's well ahead in her classes. But, you know, she, of course, made sure that she actually met, did the necessary marks, too. Mm-hmm. Yes. But it's through this we also we established the... the one of her few friendships, I suppose, we get over the course of this novel. Yeah. Uh, so we also, uh, we so we get another interlude of a session where she gets very weird about um, some Christian help that is offered. Um, true, and yeah. how down Lloyd was on that, even though, like, there's the, I'd be so comforted if I, you know, could think of him burning in hell. It's like, <laughs> okay, well, <Wait> a <laughs> we've made maybe some progress here. Sure, this this seems healthy, mm. but like actually, she, she also she also ties it to her mom too for her mom's resistance to people coming in when she was in the hospital to try yes. to give her some more pamphlets. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, uh, yeah, man, it's it, it's a weird that is a weird little recount in terms of her discussing that pamphlet and that the last line about it'd be comfortable if she could imagine him burning in hell, but she's unable to go on because it was just too stupid to talk about and because of a familiar impediment that was like a hammer hitting her in the belly. Mm. And that's not explained, and at this stage we have no real grounds to understand it yet, but more will come. Um, yeah, um, so we do then get the the introduction to Dory's friendship with Maggie, mm-hmm. who is another homeschooling mother, and they kind of start out because dory never learned to drive because she was 16 when she, she she's all 23 her lot in with this man um that maggie has a minivan and she has a couple of kids that she's homeschooling for allergies and asthma um and so they end up kind of carpooling back and forth to the school where they turn in um the assignments that their kids would have been doing that week there are times I have to stop myself with the story and remind me how young our main character actually is. 
because reading through the intro, I was assuming that in some ways this was a middle-aged woman that we were going through. She in, seems in some ways, she has a lot of, yeah. She's had a lot of life in 23 years, mm-hmm. but it's important to remember just how young she is and how she really has no perspective of the world outside of what Lloyd allowed her to have. Mm-hmm. And that informs a lot of what goes on. But Maggie is, in many ways, her polar opposite, at least in terms of bearing and what she's allowed to be. That she's free-spirited, she's had a lot of life experiences up to this moment, she's traveled the world. And the interactions between the two of them are very stilted as a result of that, of where Dory is very much convinced that if Maggie heard, like, you know, read it, essentially was presented with a transcript of how, what her interactions with Lloyd are like, Maggie would not, in her view, accurately assess the man and mm-hmm. might call relevant authorities or do other things with respect to him. Or very accurately assess the man and might <laughs> yeah. call relevant authorities. <laughs> yeah, that too. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yes, and and so we also get the um, Lloyd's impression of basically any anybody competent female, I guess. Um, yeah. that they're lesbians. Um, um, and he certainly would prefer for uh, Dory not to be associating with them. Although Dory is very quick quick to point out. Um, that he he does this to people regardless of gender. So oh yeah, there's that one guy at the ice cream store, uh, ice cream factory he works at. So yeah. clearly, because of that one guy, it's not only women that he's no, it couldn't doing this to. Possibly be. No, no. Despite the fact that I just listed nine examples of women, that that in no way establishes a pattern. Yeah. Um, uh, he's very much convinced that her relationship with Maggie will be problematic. Um, in large part, eventually gets to the idea that she inevitably will try to break us up. That don't know how, don't know in what way, but you'll go crying to her and she'll blame me for it, essentially. Yeah, this has more red flags than a full gale. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, where do we go from there? Um, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of kind of... Um, we jump around a lot. Yeah, and there's a lot of the same kind of stuff about... Or stuff in the same vein about... Lloyd and Dory and Dory and Maggie and Lloyd's feelings about Maggie and Maggie's feelings. We get this whole triangle and kind of some more explanation of how that works, but it's, you know, it's as you would expect it would be given our setup of it, right? It's clear that she seemed to, even before she realized that she needed therapy, was in a kind of sort of therapy with Maggie, or at least viewed her in a similar way to what she now views Mrs. Sands. Yeah. Of where a person that she could go to and spend time with, in Maggie's case, apparently voluntarily or not, she kind of relied on Maggie for a lot of driving about, getting about, having another person to, you know, mm-hmm. raise kids with, in a way that she obviously couldn't have with Lloyd. But she always has to keep her barriers up because she's desperately afraid that. Her life, which is happy, which is what she wants, which is everything that she's dreamed of and can imagine, would be revealed and in some ways be harmed or fall apart if Maggie had a real insight to what it actually is. So, as you said, it it makes for a very weird triangle kind of relationship of where Lloyd is her world, because she doesn't know the concept of it, and Maggie is a a bit of a view into something that's different, that she's purposely trying to keep that closed. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you mentioned that uh, Lloyd starts making all of these comments about Maggie is going to break up our relationship. And Mm -hmm. um, we get a break in the story and then we get and in fact, it turned out as he had said. Um, So we get to the real kind of meat of the story here. Sort of. I feel like it's interesting because like now that 
you know, going back through a little bit more, my first reading, like, it, it was very much a, as I read quickly, uh, we do get to very much the meat of the story, but we also have no idea what happens. Not yet. Um, no, yeah. not, not ever. Like, we, we know we know what causes the trauma, but we don't know anything about the the events surrounding it other than something happened. They they had a fight over a tin, over a can of spaghetti sauce, I think. Oh yes, so so we get it like post hoc. Yeah, we don't we don't get it in that morning because in that moment because all of this kind of is is told is told retrospectively. You start from Maggie or from Dory showing up at Maggie's door, essentially. Right. Um, you get we get a little bit of background of how Dory has managed Lloyd in his out violent outbursts in the past. Um, right. Which has typically insane. been quote-unquote successful. Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah, that's a way for it. Uh, banging but, your head on the floor, chanting, it's not true, it's not true, it's not true, over and over, and finally he would back down. Yes. Um, but it's interesting to see that even she's acknowledging by this point that it got worse gradually. Yes. So she started to get on the same page that this is not necessarily what I wanted. But, you know, this is still this is still fine. This is fine. Yeah, and in, so in, in this instance, in the moment when we, we don't know about the spaghetti, we don't know about the can, we don't know about, no. like, what specifically sparked it, Dory leaves the house and goes, or I'm sorry, um, Do- yeah, Dory leaves the house and goes to Maggie's house as the only friend that she has um, in the middle of the night. Uh, again, I love how this story is structured because it's such a weird way of telling a story because she's arrived at the house before we find out how she got to the house. It's before actually, we find out why she left the house. It's actually like a very true crime podcast storytelling structure. Well, yeah. We are unlocking this as we go. Mm-hmm. And it makes, it makes it may, It's a surprisingly thrilling read. I mean, if we, we've, we've been given enough little tidbits to go on, but we don't necessarily know where they're going to lead yet. But and she I ends think, up at this house. No, sorry. I was going to say, it also feels like somebody recounting a story that is incredibly emotionally charged and having the, mm-hmm. like, I got from point A to point B and I couldn't really tell you how it happened, but yep. I just, right. you know, I just remember I had to get out of there and then I was at Maggie's door and I was, you know, I was just, yeah. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for coming at night, you know, this late at night. And, you know, she said oh don't worry like you know can i get you a drink oh you don't drink like let me get you some tea just sit down and 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 then you know once you're settled you know you can you can talk to me and tell me whatever you need to and it's just it's it's a very it's a very true story Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it it, it makes for an interesting way of experiencing because most of the story is being told through you know maggie's eyes and maggie's experiences but we're experiencing it as if we're a third party unlocking it or seeing it or being told to the same way kind of maggie is going through it right now so that's interesting but before as you guys said she shows up at the house at night we find out that she had some kind of fight with uh lloyd find out later it was a result of purchasing a dented can of tomato sauce because it was Which on sale, is, and she thought she was doing a good job saving saving the money. That's her perspective. His perspective is that she was intentionally trying to poison the family. Two different sides of the coin here. Uh, yeah. She she basically uh, relays to Maggie that oh, we just had a fight, and I needed to get out. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of imagine her walking up walking up to the door, like maybe in in socks and drenched um, oh, yeah. with this. Oh, and maybe like 
a scrape on her forehead from where she's been hitting her head on the floor um and just saying like oh we just had an argument and maggie being like uh-huh uh-huh that that mm-hmm. is exactly okay. what happened because yeah, her, her description of how she got there of where she's you know I, I agree with you that she's probably not just ran out of the house she's walked along a gravel road for several hours she's dodged cars by hiding in the wilderness whenever they went by to get to this house um which is interesting that again Maggie is kind of her support network. She's kind of serving as a therapist. This is the place that she goes when she has no other idea where to go. But when she gets there, she immediately lies or immediately hides. Mm -hmm. She knows that this is a person that can help her. She's the closest thing she has to that emotional support network. But she's still closed off to it even when she's voluntarily left for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. And so in the course of the night that um, Dory is there... At Maggie's house, Lloyd calls. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's at least seems like, from what we can hear of it at Maggie, a pretty normal enough conversation. That, yep, she's here. She needed to get out. Oh, don't worry. I'll drop her off in the morning. She mm-hmm. just needs a chance to clear her head. And Maggie just kind of uh, laughs it off to Dory. He yep, he called. I don't really know what he's like normal, but doesn't sound drunk. And it, it, everything seems content enough that, for many ways this can go, we're reassured at this point that, okay... This seems to be going about as well as it can. Mm-hmm. There was and a fight, wrong. but Dory is in a safe place, and Maggie has her, and it's all okay. Whew. So, so, yeah. And- yeah. Um, so Maggie drops her off early in the morning. Um, her husband's staying with the kids, and yeah. her uh, husband Maggie... is sitting on the front porch. Yep. Yeah, and he's acting weird. Good morning. He's. He's being almost like she almost thinks at first that he's being kind of sing songy sarcastic with her, like he's being a certain degree of mocking. And they have good, they, they say their good mornings. Um, Maggie leaves. Yeah, Maggie leaves real quickly. Maggie's <laughs> out of here real fast. And um, yeah. But Dory kind of knows without really knowing immediately because as soon as she gets over this kind of sing songy sarcastic voice, her first question is, where are the kids? Where are the kids? Yeah. Um, and all he just keeps repeating to her is, essentially, I wouldn't go inside if I were you or something like that. Yeah, he tells her. So it, he, she kind of says, all right, let me in. He's like, no, you can't. So they go back and forth. And then she starts apologizing for what happened. And he reiterates, you know, better not go in. And then she's like, wait a minute. Where are the kids? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he shifts a little to let her past, and she goes in and finds that he suffocated two with a pillow and then seemingly choked another one out with his bare hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and makes the point to tell her that at the time he'd called, he'd already done it, and you brought it all on yourself. And then makes a point when the police are called, because Maggie comes back having a premonition that something must be wrong here. Maybe I shouldn't have just left the friend who ran away from a person I think is abusive with just barely a word. And finds this, finds your friend doubled over in pain in the front yard. And three children dead inside the home with Lloyd just kind of looking on impassively. And as the police are called, he takes the time to say that he essentially did it to save them from misery, the misery of knowing that their mother had walked out on them. Continuing what seems to be a recurring trend for for him of anything bad that happens to the children is as a result of something Dory did or did not do. Mm -hmm. Even actions he himself inflicts. 
And yeah, this is our mid-season climax of this story. This <laughs> is the mystery that has been behind everything, that has been that has been the explanation we needed to unlock a lot of things. But the story does not end here. The story's not really about necessarily... This reveal is not the whole tale. We're about and halfway through. We're, we're, it's very much the mid-season climax. And there is a a lot to go from here, um, oh. inclu- including a fair amount of therapy. I was going to say, and right after this, we, we get jarred back to a therapy session um, mm-hmm. where Mrs. Sands asks, basically, do you feel better having seen him? Yeah. Which, again, we've not seen that ourselves yet, but... In story, it has already happened, and will happen again. And and part of the reason that she she can and does see him is that he was not found guilty of a crime. He was judged criminally insane. Right. He's lacking competence to stand trial, but mm-hmm. it also means that he is still deemed a threat to self and world in a way that cannot be released into the public. Yeah, so the buses that she's on are not going to a prison. They're going to essentially a kind of mental asylum, I mm-hmm. suppose. And this is the third time she's essentially gone. The first two times he apparently refused to see her. And um, third time he came in. And it was not, I don't know if she, she did not know what to expect, but what was before her was anything but what she would have expected. Mm-hmm. That she barely, in some ways, recognizes it as him. He's not the commanding force of personality that she really remembers or associates with him. That he is, in some ways, at least appearing, cowed, quiet, uninteractive. It's not. It's only in little brief moments of his just self-absorption and hyper-opinions that she's reminded of the actual person that she knew. But as, this, as you said, in this therapy, they kind of go through, how did you feel about seeing this, and how was it different than you expected? Yeah, and, and Dory talks about exactly what you said, Spencer, the idea that... Um, that Lloyd really was not the same, not the same person to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but that gets, I don't know if it exactly gets undercut in the moment, but um, when she goes, when Dory goes back to Mrs. Sands, she says, you know what? I thought about what you, your question mm-hmm. about how I felt. And I didn't really know how I felt having gone to see him, but I decided, or, but I realized that I felt bad about it, and so I decided I'm not going to see him again. And that's and a I'm, lie. Well, that is a. Mm-hmm. I wonder if, like, do you think that that she has seen him in the intervening time, or she's decided to see him in the future? Because clearly she's lying there. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the book purposely frames it as I decided not to see him again, and immediately cuts to her talking about talking with him again. Yeah, it's it, honestly, I'm not sure if. Maybe you all have an actual answer to this, but my kind of trying to suss out how many times she had seen him and when those visits were actually happening in the structure of this story mm-hmm. got really kind of muddled. I mean, I assumed almost just from the sheer amount that they're talking with each other about their days, about where they are, whatever else, by the point that she's saying, I'm not going to go see him again, she's seeing him on a regular, almost like weekly basis, mm-hmm. was what I kind of assumed. Mm-hmm. That this yeah, that is, was my... This is the therapy that she has chosen for herself. Mm-hmm. Mm. I I know, BJ, I know, but I'm sticking to that. It's I'm not saying it's good, I'm just saying it's how she's choosing to cope. Sure. I I feel like that's like saying that somebody that turns to heroin for 
you know, dealing with trauma is, is choosing their therapy. I just, hmm. I know. Well, I but... mean, yeah, I mean, I think that you're, you're both right. I mean, she, she has been indoctrinated by him yeah. um, into a certain way of being in the world. And just because he has committed this horrible act does not mean that that goes away. No, I mean, she has no sense of self-affirmance without him. She has no real sense of her own personality without him. I mean, we see that in the opening chapters of where she's purposely, initially, tried to do everything she can to be different than that. Mm -hmm. To go as starkly opposite as she can, because she has no other concept of how to be other than what he wanted her to be. But since that's her, I mean, she grew up with this guy. She was 16 through 23, very formative years growing up with him about what he wanted out of her, about what he valued out of her. And that system of being is what she is. Mm -hmm. And so going to him to talk about herself, to talk about where she is, how else would she get affirmance? How else would she know whether she's getting better or where, or where her life is going? It's wrong and deeply deeply wrong this is why she's in therapy to help you know find a new way out of this but it's insidious kind of thing for her yeah and so we cut immediately to um them having a weird conversation yeah oh, several <laughs> several weird conversations that end with very weird letters to come yeah, yeah and so this first conversation i mean it's a lot of back and forth and really for me the biggest thing i get here is the set the the actual sort of manifestation of the weirdness that Dory has talked about, um, mm -hmm. because he presents in this conversation as if, as if he does not have a sense of self, um, yeah. as if that has been lost. Now it's unclear if that is um, kind of a manifestation of mental illness, if that is because he is being um, sort of fed drugs at this institution, if it is mm -hmm. an effect of the institution itself, all of that is left unexplained. One interesting thing about this relationship is it reminds me of some of the psychological reports that have been done about women who marry people that are on death row or in prison. Mm -hmm. And one of the main motivations they talk about with respect to them is that it provides a certain measure of control and certainty. Is that you can go to him and he can be brought to you in a way that you can always be in a certain measure of control about and have knowledge about mm. what the parameters of it are. And so she's interacting with him, but it's in a way that she gets to pick the time, that yeah. she gets to have him essentially brought to her, and she sets the tone and tenor of the conversation with him being very much passive to her in a way their relationship hasn't been before. Now... That's really that, interesting yeah. because that that starts to explain sort of why the letters that she ends up getting from him are so disturbing apart from their context or oh, their con because their content because the context in which they arrive is now no longer in her control. Right. And the danger of what she's getting into is, is the assumption that she can maintain any control over this, mm -hmm. that he's going to in some way submit to the standards that she wished to set. And the moment he starts sending letters, we just see that he is exerting control upon her in the same way they did before and has just lured her into it once more. Mm -hmm. I feel like they already started that within the first conversation because it was just oh, like a, a weird, like, you weren't wearing a jacket last week. Oh, that was three weeks ago. Well, it doesn't make sense that you're wearing a jacket. Like, where are you living now? What are you doing? And it's just mm -hmm. like this, uh, that this man has unsupervised visits with his 
child bride is baffling to me. The child bride mother of the children that he killed? Yeah. 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 I Um, mean, I guess she's an adult now, but like... Yeah. Well, but he's also, I mean, we found out early in the story that he is allowed to go outside of the compound. Mm -hmm. I mean, he has to be supervised to do that, but he's not like completely locked away. Yeah, and he it's almost misleading in terms of how he initially introduces her to what he is. He kind of frames it initially as that he's very much, doesn't really interact with him, but he's closed in, that he's on drugs. Mm-hmm. And then over the course of the story, we feel that, no, he has people he interacts with. He watches television and is more aware about, you know, current events and news than she is. Mm-hmm. That he reads all the time. He's developing his own philosophy. That it's almost like she, he's purposely trying to put himself at a pitying point to start so that she can be comfortable that she has control over this. Yeah. When in reality, he's continuing on as he always has. And it's just lured her in like a spider to, on a web. Yeah, and so um, she gets letters at work. Oh, God, those letters. Yeah, they're... I, I, I would I mean, say they're more... They're closer to, like, manifestos. They really they really do read like manifestos, yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm imagining them, you know, we get this description that they are sort of handwritten letters that are on both sides of all of these pages, and I'm imagining them in, like, very cramped handwriting. Oh, yeah. Spencer's um, memento <laughs> notes for... <laughs> For just, everything. Just put in an envelope and send, send on. Yeah. Right. There's words in a page, but what this really is is an insight into a mind. Yeah. And so, I mean, these letters are long and rambly. Yeah. Um, and profoundly manipulative, too. Yeah. So what, I mean, what do we get from them? We get delusions of grandeur, I think, to a certain degree. Um, I mean, she's talked about before that one of the few things that she know when she feel detects the old him is his judging of other people and very much overconfidence in himself and his own perspectives and knowledge and abilities. Mm-hmm. And these definitely seem to be an insight into those things with an just an undercurrent of manipulation always tied to them of where he's aware that he needs to appear to be remorseful. He's aware that he needs to appear to be, you know, humble. That he's aware that, you know, he is on her terms and that she can, should choose to come to him or not. But it's always underlaid with, well, but I actually am the one that does have the knowledge. Well, that's just society judging me. And I acknowledge that. But that's still just what society's points of view are. So uh, did you notice and how did you feel about the capitalizations y- in the know, letter? I didn't really make note of it. Okay. Oh, the sort of world and monster and myself and... And behavior, like, yeah. and, and the things that are capitalized are sort of very, like... Uh, Spencer, if you had it, have it open, just, like, peruse. Yeah. I'm and, looking through it now. And, and mm-hmm. see, so, so like, the behavior, I, I think, is, is capitalized and sort of referenced as, uh, you know, the difference between a lowercase and a capital and the importance therein. And so his behavior is monstrous, but it has a different uh, appellation and and weight to it when it's capital monster. He is a monster. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is judged by the capital world as opposed to the people around him. And, and it conveys to me at least the his own belief in his self-importance that's sort of almost like shrouded in in what he's saying but like it it can't be contained in in the words that he's trying to put down 
and mm-hmm. it's and it's sort of leaking out and comes out more and more as the letter goes on. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, I think that this fundamentally, this letter is concerned with his sort of understanding um, and felt reality of that BJ capital S self, um, mm-hmm. which is literally the only thing that he feels to be real in the world. Um, This is a man so lacking in empathy that Mm -hmm. he doesn't acknowledge the consciousness of of anyone else around him. There's such a a profound narcissism attached into this. He almost feels like, you know, what he's going through right now is his journey of self-improvement. Oh, yeah. He's in like a a sort of odyssey right now where he is Odysseus and like... Or even just, you know, Jesus in the desert yeah. kind of thing. Of yeah. where that, you know, this is my time of suffering so that I can find enlightenment. The mm-hmm. world is judging me. It's putting these things on me. But I am becoming better in spite of them or because of them. Yes. Um, and we do, at the end of the letter, get a turn specifically back to that manipulation oh, yeah. of Dory. Um, oh, don't worry. I know exactly where you are. My mind is fine. <laughs> and... I mean, there's that, and it's also just the very much that, you know, you can come and see me whenever you want, and honestly, you shouldn't come to see me. But, but I, have I have something thing to really tell you. important. Yeah, yeah, that I can't, I'm just not in a place where I can write it down. So, yeah. you know, only come to see me if you if you want to, and I understand if you don't, but I'm not going to be able to write this thing down that I have to mm-hmm. tell you. Um, and so that's the letter she gets at work. <laughs> God. I love it even better that it's at work. Because that's just, again, that's just a limit. That's almost even more directly challenging her privacy. Um, Um, She also is is working at the Comfort Inn. Um. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't actually pick up on that. Uh Um, Um, But yeah, the fact the fact that he's hitting her at work is it's he's he's going after her at the moments that she's in any way separate or removed from what he allowed her. He's going after what she maintains in public in a way that she never could have before with him. And I like, it's just even more notable that when she gets this and she really considers not going to see him for a while, but she goes, he doesn't tell her. Yes. He doesn't go into it. Oh, but I'll tell you next time. Oh, yeah. Maybe next time. You know, it's hard for me to have these conversations. And then she gets another letter. Yeah. But it's it's interesting, too, of when she goes to see him, she clearly has been thinking about what this thing is that he couldn't tell her. And she least expresses to us that she's abjectly afraid that it could be that he loves her. Mm-hmm. And she really never gets an inkling of what it is. She She's fearful that it might be that, but he immediately closes up to even discuss it. And she even closes up to discuss it to a certain point while still maintaining desperately curious as to what it might be. As you say, BJ, he taunts her basically with, well, not taunts her, encourages her with, next time, sometimes I can't talk anymore, I just... I want to, but I dry up. And then it immediately cuts without any break to the next letter, which I'm assuming she got the day after she got home. Which, this one is a doozy. Yeah, he's decided that he can write to her after all. Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking about it for like the last six minutes since Mm -hmm. I last saw you. Um, And we discussed delusions of grandeur in the last one, Jesus in the desert and all that. This one takes it to another entire level. What what is the, the what are the shows like, the the TV shows where where the the guy gets up and and talks to people about talking to their dead relatives and crap like that. Um, oh, any of the like lots of those psychic. Yeah, I mean, isn't there like, like a New Jersey the mentalist makes fun psychic, of it, but, psychic or yeah. something. <laughs> yeah, 
um, this is very much like the, um, I want to say John Edwards, but I know that's not right. Um, <laughs> North Carolina Senator he, he or the had, religious he figure? He had different things going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, uh, but, but it's very much like, oh, well, you know, maybe I'm not going to heaven, but I can talk to our children and they're doing fine and they're wonderful and um, they're dead, but, but they're happy. Yeah. And this uh, is where we get the title of this story. Yeah. Which I Jesus. kept wondering when this was going to come yeah. into play. Yeah, I lost track of it and really wasn't sure if it would ever come back to it and whether it was just meant to be a kind of overarching theme. But no, we can hear directly that he's convinced, or at least wants to convince her of the fact, that as a result of what he's gone through and the control that he's been able to manifest himself, that he's essentially transcended reality and can interact with different kind of dimensions. It's very interstellar yeah but in the most child murdering way i didn't get that theme in interstellar so it's a different kind of experience with that movie uh but yet he indicates to her that he has essentially found one particular dimension where their child children are alive and not only they're alive but they've continued to grow as if their lives have been unaltered by what they experienced and they don't remember anything that happened. They don't hold any grudge. And it's just this moment of happiness that I've found to interact with them. And I'm so hopeful that you'll be able to eventually have it with them, too. Mm-hmm. And, dear Christ, is that a lot to unpack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, delusions of grandeur, um, planning to kill her, sort of all sorts of fun little yeah. little things. What? Does he have an end goal here? Is he just trying to just fully make her dependent on him again? Is he just trying to make him the center of her life once more by giving her what he took away and get, making himself as the sole lifeline to essentially get back to it? Oh, I think he wants to kill her and then maybe kill himself, but but 100%. Like, I think that that is one of the top things in his goal because she's seen him weak or what, whatever crazy thing is going through his head but i guess a hundred in my mind a hundred percent he is trying to figure out how to kill her oh that's interesting i don't know that i necessarily got that i i really think that the i certainly believe that he might at some point kill himself but i i think i i assumed that this was like that this is a like really just a control thing yeah i saw this as a, a profoundly successful effort at her at his continued domination and her submission that I, I agree with you sarah that well, i agree with you both in terms of him killing himself that but i would see that more as just a continued demonstration of how that she's utterly reliant on him and that a most of the profound end way of demonstrating that is then take himself away from her um yeah i i didn't necessarily read it that he intended to kill her but i guess it really just depends how delusional we think he is is to believe that he might ever get out of there yeah, I have, I have to believe yeah. his doctors have got a, probably a pretty good read on him. I don't know. I guess it's the, um, I wish you could be dr- granted the chance of uh, reconnecting with them um, mm. because you were that's a, more that's deserving. That's a read on that, yeah. Yeah, so that, that was where I was just like, or, I mean, there are loads of ways to interpret, like, you know, he's trying to get her to kill herself or, or mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Um, none of them good. Um but but yeah, I 100% agree with the delusions of grandeur, and um, I I guess I have this. If this were a TV show, he would have killed himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I really think this is uh, Sarah, as you said, like really just manipulation. Yeah. Um, I, 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know. There, there are all kinds of ways that this, like, I suppose could have spun out past past the ending of the story if events, I suppose, what? didn't go down like they end up going. But I, I, I think that we get certainly the most concrete evidence that of of the manipulation itself um um and of the power dynamic that he is i mean he's already worked for over seven years to cultivate um Mm -hmm. why would he give that up in any Mm -hmm. way especially when now it is so close to coming back kind of to fruition particularly when we saw that his reaction to the most slight moment of rebellion from her Mm -hmm. is that when she left that was the only time she'd ever left before and his reaction to that was to murder all their children. So we just see how abhorrent it is in his psychology that she maintains even the slightest element of separation from him. And it's interesting and, that kind of in the aftermath of that, when she came back and Maggie dropped her off, that he was not in any way violent to her. No. Because him. that messes up the manipulation. No, he accomplished his objective by through that. Now he just needs her to observe it and understand it. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, too, as you see in these letters, that in his initial interactions, he at least puts on the pretenses of being apologetic, of being chastened. By the time we get to these letters, though, he's celebrating himself. He's celebrating what he did and has achieved, what he is and can offer now. He's no longer, he longer feels by the time he's sending these letters that he has to hide a single aspect of what he is. Because he fully believes accurately that she's back on the hook, that she is in his realm again and she'll never leave. And the reason that um, that she that Dory decides not to go see Mrs. Sands again and to instead embark on the bus journey in which we first encounter her is because this idea that, well, maybe he has made this journey. Maybe he has kind of figured it out that that's wormed its way into her head and she can't get rid of it. And she's lied to Mrs. Sands that she's on vacation and Mrs. Sands... It's like, checks in with her and is like, wait, are you back from vacation? Like, there's this whole, like, yeah. sort of everybody knows what's going on, but, like, right. no one can really prevent it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she gets lucky that a kid has an accident. Well, yeah. Let's discuss for a second, before we get there, what she is feeling as a result of these letters, as mm-hmm. a result of this talk of the dimension. Because that seems to be really key into her psychology here. Yeah. Of where she describes this as being that, um, yeah, I'll just even read this quote, that for almost two years she'd not taken notice of things that generally made people happy, such as nice weather or flowers and bloom and the smell of a bakery. She did not have a spontaneous sense of happiness exactly, but she had a reminder of what it was like. Nothing to do with weather or flowers. It was the idea of the children that she and what he had called their dimension that came sneaking up on her in a way, and for the first time brought a light feeling to her, not pain. It's a she'd never essentially had a means of finding an outlet, a future, a hope with Mrs. What Mrs. Who's getting at Mrs. Sands, mm-hmm. and this delusion, this vaguely religious kind of hope and dream that he's put upon her. So it's, it's notable that he was rejecting any Christian icons while giving her a very much kind of quasi-religious view of the afterlife and hope with that to replace it, his own creation instead. That she's able to have a sense of happiness again, and that is just. I'm not even sure what the word to put that. I guess tragic is a word for it. What, it's what did you guys make of it? the insane version of all men die twice. Hmm. And it it took 
a a very interesting author, a very disturbed character to get there, but but I guess to me this is this is what that is. You know, all men die twice when they you know die uh, in in life and when they're last mentioned. I I think is the vague quote. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this is just like one of the most twisted ways I can see it coming about, which is she has this connection with her husband because he is sort of the only other person that has a memory and a sense of their children because they were homeschooled and basically the only contact that they had were each other and her and Lloyd. Yeah, but she doesn't have a concept of her children without him. She has no way of experiencing her children, even in her own mind, without him. And so she has no way of coping with their loss. Mrs. Sands can't even touch it with a 10-foot pole. She never even refers to them by name because it's too much of a damaged issue. It's only with this guy, the one who took them away from her, uh, that she can experience that again and find some measure of coping with it. I mean, it's just the level of mastery of control that he has over here is just horrifying. I mean, it's, it's the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away kind of situation. Well, and it's it is it's also wrapped up in the fact that like, yes, he has offered this um, this both mechanism by which to remember her children in a way that is less painful to her because he is the only one who has had that experience with her, um, and mm-hmm. the only person for whom those children kind of continue to exist in memory and can like work through that, but. The the level of mastery, as you said, Spencer, is also that, like, at the point at which Dory is getting on this bus to go back to the asylum, Dory doesn't have, like, he has also taken her sense of self. Like, she doesn't have a sense of self except in him. Um, right. And except in the, the memory of her children. Um, yeah. And she seems to be finding some measure of relief in, like, admitting that, quite honestly. Yeah, and it's an experience, too, that she can only have through him. That he's, he's essentially given her the only... He's given her a dopamine hit, and anything else she can only find through him now. He's made the base concept of happiness something that she can only experience through what he will allow her to have mm-hmm. and what he will offer. And uh, that's just horrifying. Yeah. So, I guess... Um, I, I, again, wanted to liken this to the psychics that talk about talking to the dead and how emotional they can get people to get. And I also want to say that I was 100% right. It is John Edward, um, who who is a purported psychic medium, and his television show is crossing over with John Edward. There there are too many people historically known as John Edward. Uh, Yeah. It's a very common name. Yeah. That is the John Smith of a generation. Sure. Um, but yeah, it, it's just such a preying on the most precious part of a memory or whatever else, and, and right. he knows it best. Mm-hmm. Oh, and preying on the most vulnerable individuals in the process, yeah. too. Well, and, you know, it's all, it's all made more sort of quote-unquote possible by this position that he holds as essentially like the mad woman in the attic now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Where he is both locked away... Um, and out of the sort of everyday existence of life and um, his kind of assessed insanity and the way that he chooses to present also kind of lend this 
quasi-mystical air, too, that really plays into this idea of, oh, yeah, but I have access. I have access mm-hmm. to this other dimension um, through the journey or insanity or pharmaceuticals or whatever it is, but I have the access. And as you, as you guys have talked about, kind of for the first time, she's being honest with herself about it. Mm-hmm. That she seems to have a certain degree of perspective on it that she didn't. She's grown up over the course of the stories. We've gone through these various events. And she seems to get how twisted this is, but is still trying to rationalize it. Mm-hmm. Of where she even frames it as, well, you know, maybe he does have the insight. And Mrs. Sands wouldn't understand, but it's not like I would ever forgive him for what he did. That's more like the last line that she draws. Is yeah. that I can establish a relationship with him. I can depend on him again. I can rely on him for now giving me this little hope of happiness at the end of the tunnel that if only if I keep following him hand in hand there, I'll get. But I'm still keeping that I've not forgiven him for what he did. As if that is some important concession that she's still refused refused to give up. Well, I think it is to her. It is to her, but... The fact that she seems convinced that that is so important with how much else she's giving up right now just shows how deeply twisted and tragic her psychology is. And um, that, I think, brings us back to the bus. It brings Mm -hmm. us back to the bus. And at this point, I really had no idea of where this story was going to end. And I thought it was going to end very differently and much sadder. Instead, it found a remarkably unique kind of way out. Yeah, um, and so let's go through what that way out is and then maybe yeah. talk about what... What to make of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, where, where you land on it, maybe. We'll, we'll go there. Well, important question. Do you guys interpret this bus journey that she's having at the end of the story as the one that she's having at the beginning of the story? Or is this a separate bus journey from that? Um, I interpreted it as the same one. I thought it was a sort of framing mechanism. Although, like I was saying earlier... Like, the bus rides are quite literally a liminal space that right. weird stuff happens in and get mixed together. Um, but I yeah. thought that they were of a piece. Yeah, yeah. I, I was definitely in the same mind. But I also, it kind of reminded me of um, uh, a movie and a TV show. The TV show being there's, like, a scene in, I think it's SpongeBob, where, like... Uh, basically one of the characters is in traffic and things are sort of changing around him and it's sort Um, of like every this is the she's doing this very often and so it doesn't really matter which time it starts out it's um and then um the end of mrs robinson Mm -hmm. oh yeah when they're sitting on the bus staring off yeah Mm -hmm. um as you guys said it, it i i too interpreted it as being the first moment brought back to the end, particularly with the references to geography we get and and only those moments. But like you said, it doesn't really matter because it is all the same. This is a journey to a destination that has been repeated ad infinitum and will continue to be repeated ad infinitum if this intervening event didn't occur. Yeah, we Uh, have a real sort of ghost in the machine here. Yeah. (laughs) The author basically Yeah. Ghost in the Machine or Deus Ex Machina, where the author essentially may be even intervening and saying, nope, let's go, let's <laughs> send this in a different that's, direction. That's enough of this. Um, so she's on this bus ride, as she continually is, and she is up front with the driver and careening out of the side 
um, some sort of, I don't know, side road or gravel road or something, comes a kid in a truck um, who just slides full speed right into the ravine on the other side of the road, flying out of the truck in the process in ways that I didn't really understand the physics of. Clearly, our main character doesn't either. Yeah. But she even comments just how <laughs> remarkable and odd it is as he just seems to appear through the air as the truck is going by. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Wear, wear your seatbelt, kids. Yeah. <laughs> Don't jump up, from the cab as your <laughs> truck uh, she, is going. She's very notably sitting at the front of the bus. And so yes. she has a clear view of this in a way that only really the driver also does. Driver stops... He, he orders everybody to stay on the bus, but she follows him, and he has no complaint about that. Probably because at this point, they've been driving a lot together, and also because she saw it. Um, they get out and find the kid on the pavement, um, leaking a certain strawberry liquid from the back of his head, which that was a graphic description I didn't necessarily need, and yeah. not breathing, but still with a bit of a pulse. And then all of the lessons that she got from Lloyd about with respect to caring for her children, these kind of moments, come to the fore. And she starts engaging in life-saving efforts to keep him going and get his uh, uh, get, uh, breathing once more. Mm-hmm. And she notably will really not let anyone else near him. Um, no. But As- she is giving him mouth to... Well, she gets his tongue out of the way because she's she remembers Lloyd telling her that the tongue will just flop over and stop the, stop the breathing, right? And then she starts giving mouth to mouth and she does so for what seems like a really long time. Um, That's one of the things about CPR in real life is that it it's not like in the movies where you do it for 10 seconds and they wake up. It's just yeah. like, no, you do this until the paramedics get here. Yeah. Yeah, you break some ribs. It's if. not pleasant. You don't. You, the reason you can't see it the way it's done in movies is because it's inflicting serious bodily harm to save someone. Mm-hmm. Um, 5%. But she gets she gets a breath True. out of him. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. he. It seems well, like seems the to yeah the pink liquid she, stops well, coming out of his. She she's very convinced head. that he's improving. Whether yes. that's true or not is a different question. But she certainly seems to need to believe that what she mm-hmm. has done has brought him back, and that he's in a constant state of improvement from there. And the bus driver essentially says, "Listen, I'm really already late." Yeah. Help don't, should be on its way. I've got to go. <laughs> Which, I, I don't okay. really want to leave you alongside of the road, yeah. so can you just like come with me? This other random dude who get, brought a blanket can take over from here. And she, that no, was cool. I can get a ride with a <laughs> random dude or hitchhike or something. Yeah. And she has these really interesting little descriptions as she's. It's like she's sharing this perfectly quiet, personal moment with the boy of mm-hmm. where. He's breathing very softly. She's speaking as quietly as possible as if she's having a conversation just with him. The world itself is kind of fading around her as she's having this moment with this person that she just saved. And everything else is just kind of disappearing into the mist of unimportance around her. And the story kind of just ends there of where she he, he she just says, you know, I'll have to ride home. Keep make sure you sure and you don't have to go to London. No. And then it just wraps up and well i feel like that to say that it just wraps up that well yeah i know okay the story ends right but i feel like the the significance of you don't have to get to london no is the whole point of the ending scene 
No, no. I, I, I'm going to unpack. I was going to suggest we unpack it from here, but in terms okay. of text, the text yes. stops. Yes. There's a red diamond that says we are done. <laughs> is it? Is it? Is it red on your screen? Mine's black. Uh, yes. Okay. Interesting. Cool. Um, um. So, yeah. What I mean. What What do we make of this ending? Um, and I think that we can discuss that and sort of like I guess what it what it means or what the feeling is that you get from it. Like what? Where are we left here? I mean, as BJ said, the whole "you don't have to go to London" thing, and she says no, is huge and massive and is altering the entire course of the story from here. Possibly, depending on how we interpret it. Sure. Um, it seems to be unless at least she's suggest- going to see Mrs. Sands. Who the hell does? <laughs> I think she's going wherever this boy is going. Yeah, I interpreted this as being essentially that she's associated a massive portion of her identity about motherhood, about children, that they were taken away from her and she's been they've been dangled in front of her as being, you know, I can offer you a return to these if only you submit to me. And now that she has saved someone, she's used the knowledge that she had to bring a life back, she intends to make this her new focus and her new world. Mm-hmm. Um as you said, she she does not intend to leave this boy for the foreseeable future, regardless of what other drivers come up offering blankets, regardless of what paramedics say to her. I'm fully imagining that she's going to intend to force her way riding in the ambulance wherever this kid goes. I, I guess I also see this as a the only demonstrable thing that she has of her self-worth, self-value, and impact that she has made that isn't tied, tied to, to her trauma. Well, yeah. it is very much tied to Lloyd, which is kind of why I don't like how it resolves, and I don't think it's as permanent as you do, I guess. It's an interesting kind of thing of where I almost feel that this is the final effort at coping, of where she's maintaining awareness of her past, that she's in some ways understanding that it informs who she is and what she is, but she's making a conscious effort to move, to use it to move on to do something different. And it's one of the first decisions that she makes for herself. That so much of what she was doing different from that were things that were just pre- being presented as part of the therapy, as part of the necessary routine. Here, it's her past is still informing who she is. She can never get away from that. But she's using it to accomplish something that is entirely her choice. And I view that as profound and has massive potential for actual healing in a way that she hasn't before. And I think it's not, for me, it's not just that it's her choice, although that is, that is incredibly important as you point out, Spencer, but by ending with this question of, so you don't need to get to London and Mm -hmm. her saying no, that is the only active rejection that we get from her. And it is a rejection of going to Lloyd. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is a turn away from Lloyd and to, I mean, and to, and to we, this sort of life that she has given. Um, it, it, yeah, I, I guess it, it's, I don't see, I see a change in behavior, but not one that's healthy, I guess. And what? so like, yeah, it's, she's, I, I, I sort of can see this, you know, going a number of different ways. One of which, you know, she goes next week and apologizes apologizes to Lloyd that she didn't make it and says, you know, don't worry, it won't happen again. Um, And, you know, some that she gets better and things like that. But to me, this is just like a really, 
unhealthy latching on to something else. Like, admittedly, it's probably the lesser of two evils. Um, not that yeah. it's particularly an evil, but, like, this is not a healthy way to go about things. It, yeah, it kind of depends... It kind of depends whether you interpret this as she's la- is she latching onto a different person or is she latching onto a different concept? And the book is purposely ambiguous. And in terms of the long-term implications of this, I'd say this book kind of stands against the idea of permanence anyway. That the idea of things remaining fixed, the idea of things ever returning to what they were kind of just seems foolhardy. That everything is constantly changing, metamorphosizing at all times forever. So, yeah, I mean... It gives us a hopeful potential, but we have no idea where that could potentially lead. And I think, I mean, you know, BJ, like in the real world, you were probably right in the scenarios that you were spinning out. But within the text itself, I think that there is sort of ample evidence in what it is trying to do that um, what we are what we are seeing at the end of this story is a break Um, Mm -hmm. and that the act of denying Lloyd is the fundamental act that, um, and turning fully in a different direction, literally, um, yeah. is the fundamental act of, of um, kind of self-affirmation that Dory could have done. Um, and it's mm-hmm. the, the one thing that she has not done throughout the rest of the story. So, like... <laughs> Yes, if you are if you are dealing with a substantially abused woman for several years who has been brought under the thumb of this man and like takes one step away from him in the real world, probably going to end up going back to him. Um, but within the confines of of the right. narrative of this story, this is the first time that she's really making right. yeah. some sort of progress. There was therapy. There were all of these kind of motions and going through the motions and all of that. But like this is self determined. Right. This, this, I mean, therapy is an ongoing process. There is no magical moment that a person is suddenly cured by. There is no real cured. It's a question of coping. And this is kind of her finally reading, reaching the proper mindset of where she should go back to Mrs. Sands and have regular conversations now. Mm-hmm. This is, she has reached a state where she actually, where therapy might actually do her some positive good. Um, and she's done it essentially on her own through a series of intervening surprising events. But it is a, a hopeful potential and a positive step, and the, per- the story is purposely ending here, so we can just only imagine where it might lead. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that wraps up this. Um, what'd y'all end up thinking of it? So, it, go ahead, BJ. <laughs> I was going to say, it's better than every other movie or TV show that I feel like has touched on similar things. It felt more real than a lot of them. I mean, I feel like this is a very, an all too common topic. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the um, either be- behaviors of many people involved are either normalized or justified or portrayed in a much um, out more out of touch with reality way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a a maybe harder to relate way there there isn't like a you know she's not doting on lloyd when she's going and seeing him i mean there's still this detachment and and again you know just everything about it feels you know sort of all too real mm-hmm. and i really like that in the story mm-hmm. and it, you know it read quickly and it was interesting um and 
I, I'm not sure how much I love the in media rest and hard finish, but, but literarily it worked well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I loved, I loved this story. Um, I think it, it, it had a lot of things in it that were always, always already going to be right up my alley. Um, but a couple of things that we, that we have touched on that I think that make kind of to your points, uh, BJ, this story work in ways that other stories about kind of abusive relationships um, and the fallout from that don't work as well have to do with the really complicated and interesting structure that this story takes on um, Mm -hmm. and the kind of framing and the interjections of the therapy sessions and the going back and forth and past and present present and the storytelling structure of the stories within this relatively short piece of fiction um, Mm -hmm. really masterfully done. Um, Mm -hmm. I also just in terms of the style of the writing of the story, the spareness of the prose was really resonant for this type of story um yeah i loved it I, yeah, we talked no please be go on ahead. i was just gonna say sarah i'm still so surprised with the short stories that you seem to really like and your discomfort with horror because i feel like <laughs> they they feel like they should go hand in hand um i'm a complicated creature bj you've you've talked before that you like true crime but not horror right yes it's the Mm -hmm. it's the the farther removed it gets from reality the more uncomfortable it gets for you yeah and i told you a lot of this read um like true crime stories to me and that's you know at the at the end there is of course this sort of spinning out that you can do but what i don't like about horror as opposed to kind of the reality of true crime is the imaginative space that horror leaves you whereas true mm-hmm. crime is kind of like i don't know somebody did something and it was really fucking terrible but we figured it out more or mm-hmm. less right um i mean unsolved cases and all of that are, are one thing but like there is a procedure to what happens right. um, there are rules yes dun dun <laughs> And I, I really agree with you guys. We've talked before various stories we've gone through about what makes a successful short story and where various authors have failed. This feels like one of the most effective short stories we've read in a long time. Mm-hmm. Of where it is just the author is has such a mastery of the medium of bringing across what she wants to through the limited setting, and it it's just so well structured. It's so well built mm-hmm. that. I mean, I can see why she's just so well-regarded and so, you know, credentialed for short stories, because this is a real mastery of the art. Yeah, I think, as we talked about, I think in our last episode, basically, in short stories, you can choose what you want to do. You can have a plot, you can talk about, you can develop your characters, and you, or you can develop a little bit of a world. But you kind of have to choose. Mm-hmm. And... Like, you, you don't want any of them to not have a concept, but sort of only one or maybe two, depending on the length of the story, can be developed. Mm-hmm. And she very much knows what world this character is in and what the overall plot, because we get very defined glimpses into yeah. into the plot. Mm-hmm. But, but those aren't the focus because the character dory needed to is the focus of this story and she is well developed through it 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so if our listeners would like to find out about some other well-developed characters... Um, they definitely should not listen to some burdensome thing that, that <laughs> Kenley wrote, but... Um, <laughs> We, we have done a lot of other stories that, that did have good characters in them. Um, and you can find all of those on MegumTalks.com um, or Stitcher and iTunes and um, all of the those other things as long as they, they update their um, casts appropriately, which hopefully has all been worked out. Um, and if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can click on contact us at the upper right hand corner of mangumtalks.com and we read all of the things that get submitted, albeit most of them are about pharmacy advertisements, and I would much rather a suggestion of a book rather than the, um, antibiotics that I should probably be taking. So... Um, we will figure out what we are doing next, probably another short story, um, and we are continuing with our read of Harry Potter, um, we will be starting our, uh, read of, uh, the second book, which Chamber probably is like, yeah, <laughs> I was working on it, I was pretty I was trying sure to help. It was Chamber of Secrets, and I appreciate that, mm. um, uh, with the next, the new year. Um, mm-hmm. and definitely looking, looking forward to it. Forward to exploring that chamber. Okay. Alright, <laughs> <laughs> uh, y'all had had a blast. The story. Glad everybody enjoyed it. And to our listeners, we we'll hope you'll read along with us next time. Bye, y'all.